Luke 22, and that's where we'll begin in this part of our assembly this morning. If you were here last Sunday, I talked about how Brother Phil Robertson was going to be here, Brother Phil from Gainesville, and I am not Phil Robertson, like Chris Emerson said the other night, I'm not Phil Robertson, I am, uh, in a sense, filling in. Brother Phil had, uh, there was a a tragedy in the congregation where he preaches, and uh, one of their elders passed away. And he felt like he needed to be there. The funeral and everything was this weekend. And so he chose uh, to be there with them and was not able to come and be with us for our workshop weekend. So uh, we, uh, what we did was to call on some of the men who were already coming uh, to fill in and to do a little more in the workshop. And we were able to do all of that. And we just had a great weekend. So I, I just want to say, by the way, this is going to be the last time I'm going to be talking to everybody this morning. Uh, I just want to say... It is awesome what you do in this weekend, and I am just, I'm amazed and I'm proud in the good way, not in the bad way, uh, to be a part of that and to be a part of a group uh, that sacrifices so much and works so hard to do something for young people. I just had a blast yesterday. It was so much fun uh, to be with these young people, to be teaching them, and to see them growing and participating uh, and thinking about spiritual things. It's not just like an entertainment thing. It is very much a Bible study weekend, and uh, I was thrilled to be a part of it. So I commend you. I commend our elders, the deacons who work so hard and do so many things behind the scenes. Uh, I just um, It was just an awesome day, and so thank you for that. But what that means for me for this morning is I, I was expecting Brother Phil to be here and to preach uh, in both this period and in our regular worship at 1040, Uh, But because Phil's not going to be here, this is the second Sunday, and the second Sunday is our time for Q&A. So I said, well, I'll do Q&A, and I'll let Zach do the uh, regular worship service. So that's what we're going to do, which is sort of a flip-flop from what Zach and I normally do. Uh, But here we are. And uh, so that's the plan for this morning. So for all the parents that are concerned about uh, little children who you had to wake up early this morning because of the time change and everything, don't worry Zach's preaching, so we'll all get out of here a lot earlier, uh, more than likely. No pressure. All right, so uh, what, what is Q&A? What are we talking about? For those who are visiting with us or who are not familiar with this, uh, these are questions that have been previously submitted. Uh, so I'm not just taking questions, but they're things that, that people had questions about and have submitted those to me, and now I've taken some time to prepare an answer, and I'm going to go through those answers uh, this morning. So I want to encourage you, if you do have questions, keep asking those questions. Send them to me, email me. If you talk to me, make sure I write it down or put it in my phone uh, because I have amnesia about that kind of thing. Uh, But if you do, I'm always taking questions and always excited about that because this has been something that has been really good and positive for me and I think good for the group. And so I want to keep doing it. So uh, that's going to be requiring more questions as we keep going. So keep passing those along to me. So uh, the questions that we're going to talk about this morning, uh, I tried to group them around, uh, pull some of the questions I had gotten together that seemed to me to go together. And there are a couple questions this morning that have to do with the Lord's Supper and one that has to do with a collection that I thought we would address this morning. So uh, the first question is this, uh, why does Jesus bring thought to the body and the blood in the Lord's Supper when the blood is what cleanses us? So you see the nature of the question. The question is we, we have two things that really Jesus focuses on in the Last Supper and that we focus on as we take the Lord's Supper. 
uh, and they are the body and the blood. But why the body? Because the blood is, is the important part, especially as we, as we read the passages that deal with the blood cleansing. So why would we bring thought to the body in this? So I wanted to, to go through this and begin here in Luke 22 where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper or he has the Last Supper, this Passover meal with his disciples. Luke 22 and verse 14 says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he, has been, by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus takes the Last Supper. It's called the Last Supper because it's the last time he's going to be with his apostles together before his death, before his betrayal this very night that we read about at the end of the passage there. And it is clear from Luke's account that it is a Passover meal. He says that in verse 15, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you. So there would have been a lot of different things on the table at a Passover meal. Particularly like the centerpiece of the Passover meal was the Passover lamb that was killed and the blood was put on the doorpost and it was eaten. And it was eaten with some bitter herbs that were put with it according to the Passover preparation. So... It was also customary as you ate the Passover. I found this this week and I thought this was very interesting. It actually helped me to understand more of how Jesus presents this. It was customary to take each element of the Passover meal and sort of give an explanation of what this is and what it means. So I, I wrote some of these down. So they would take the lamb and they would say, this is the lamb whose blood was painted on the doorposts to save from the angel of death. And this is the unleavened bread. And you remember the unleavened bread was specifically because they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise because the deliverance of God was so swift they had to get out of Egypt immediately. So when you eat the unleavened bread, it doesn't have leaven for a reason uh, because God's deliverance happened so quickly. Uh, this bowl of salt water that would be on the table reminds us of the tears shed in captivity. These bitter herbs remind us of the bitterness of slavery. There is a few fruit puree that would be on the table and it reminds us of the clay used to make bricks. There are four cups of wine on the table. And these are to remind us of four promises in Exodus chapter 7. I'll bring you out. I'll deliver you from slavery. I'll redeem you. I will take you to be my people. So when you have that background that each element sort of has its own significance in the Passover meal, you can see what Jesus is doing when he says, take, eat of the bread. This is my body. Or take, drink, this is the new covenant in my blood. You see what's happening. He is, he is taking those things and in the form of explanation, he is giving them a new meaning and a new explanation and saying this is now going to mean something different to you. And so as you partake, remember something besides the Passover. Remember what I'm about to do for you. And that is a very interesting twist on the Passover meal that Jesus does here. It also helps me with how we understand the meal. Because the Passover meal, when they took the Passover meal, we're talking about hundreds of years after the actual Passover. So they would take the lamb and they would say, this is the lamb that was whose blood was spread. And, and it wasn't actually the lamb, was it? It's not literal. But as they eat, they remember. 
Okay? And as they eat each part, they remember, they sort of reenact what happened back in the Passover. And so it became a memorial meal in a, in a unique way. But it is not a literal meal where each element is literally what we're saying it is. It is instead something that brings to mind those things. And I think that helps us when we talk about the Lord's Supper. Because we might even say those things. Jesus says, take ye, this is my body. And we say, well, wait a minute, Jesus, that's bread. But you see what he's doing. He's saying, no, it memorializes my body. As you take, you think about this and you remember. Or we might say it's symbolic. What we're saying is, we know it's not literally the body, but it is something that brings to mind the body, and that's the point of the meal. So, verse 19 then says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So the significance of the body here has to do with it being given for you. It is given, meaning it is a sacrifice, and it is given for you, meaning it is intended to benefit other people. It's not just a sacrifice that happened for God. It is a sacrifice that happened for other people. So the significance of the body here is that the body is what is sacrificed. And when we remember that, we remember how much Jesus gave up and who he did it for, which is us. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 5. This is right after the section where he talks about how the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. In, in verses 1 to 4. But instead, we're going to talk about the sacrifice that does take away sin. Hebrews 10 and verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice, sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have desired neither, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the notable thing in the passage in verse 5 is he says, a body you have prepared for me. Jesus took on an actual body when he came to earth. He lived in a body. It was a real body, just like your body and my body, a physical body. And at the end of this text in verse 10, he says that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. If we want to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, we are talking about the sacrifice of a body, a physical body that is killed, that is beaten that is abused, and then finally offered for us. And so when we talk about the body of Jesus, the blood is, is said to cleanse us in a number of places, but the body here is the sacrifice offered on our behalf. And so the Lord's Supper is not just a celebration of the current fact of our salvation. It is also a remembrance of what it costs to give us salvation. This is what we think about. Something happened to someone for me to be able to have the state I have now, to have the grace I have now, to have the forgiveness, to have the peace of mind that I have now. It didn't just happen. It's not just a fact of the world. It is something that someone did for me. How did they do it? They suffered physically for me to have this privilege. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to look at a couple, one more idea in a couple of passages here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10 that I want to tie together because I think there is another way to think about the body image 
in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he's saying as we partake of the food, the feast accompanying a religious festival, we're sharing in it. And we're sharing in everything that's celebrated by it. So, of course, the context in this, set, in this chapter is he doesn't want them to go partake of the idol food and the idol festivals because they're having fellowship or endorsing the idol. And he says, I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. But he also sort of inadvertently talks about the Lord's Supper. And particularly look at verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ? So we participate in, we share in, we partake of the body and blood of Jesus. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the fact that we have that sacrifice for ourselves. But I want you to notice verse 17. Verse 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So you notice now we have a different idea for the word body. Verse 16 talks about the body of Christ, and I believe we're talking about the physical body that Jesus sacrificed and offered. But verse 17 uses the body of Christ differently. We are the body of Christ. So this is what we might call the spiritual body of Christ. The body of Christ that is the church, the group of people who belong to Christ. They are his body in a different way. And what Paul seems to be doing here is saying that we participate in the physical body of Christ along with the spiritual body of Christ. And those things sort of go together. And his language is so fluid that he hardly mentions one without the other. Turn the page to 1 Corinthians 11. He does the same thing here. 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about the Lord's Supper, 23 to 26, where it's very similar to what we read in Luke. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, he says we are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Those two elements continue to be the important part. But remember the problem in Corinth was they were taking the Lord's Supper separately. They weren't waiting for one another. And there seems to be some cliquishness in this, some class differences, that kind of thing. And so he is telling them, you wait for one another and take together as one body. And I believe that's what he means in verse 29, where he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. So he's not saying whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body and the blood, that's not really the question. It's not about remembering Jesus' physical body and physical blood. It's about discerning the fact that we are a body of Christ. And so that there is more to this than just me. So to me, it seems important that the spiritual sense of the body is also a part of our partaking. That the body of Jesus, yes, is the physical part, but there is also a spiritual sense in which the body matters. So bottom line in my answer to this question, why bring thought to the body and blood when the blood is what cleanses us, 
is that the body is the, the part that is sacrificed. That is the focus of that. Sacrifice for us, given for us, offered for us. And the blood, of course, cleanses us as representative of the life that is given through Christ. All right, so the next question also has to do with the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is the question, why don't children take the Lord's Supper and who qualifies for the Lord's Supper? So I'll take the last part first. Is that okay? I guess I should have asked the question. I, I might should have put the last part first. Who qualifies for the Lord's Supper? Let's talk about that first. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven 26. We're right here. 1 Corinthians eleven 26. So I want you to remember this is a letter written to the church at Corinth, to Christians. And it says, For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So remember, it's written to the church in Corinth. These are people who believe in Jesus. So it's natural that these are going to be the people who remember his death regularly, who proclaim his death until he comes. They believe he's going to come back. They believe in what he's done for them. They want to celebrate it. And so they're the ones partaking of the Lord's Supper. So when the Lord's Supper is instituted, that last supper scene we read just a moment ago in Luke 22, it is Jesus' disciples that are there with him. It is disciples consistently who are portrayed as taking the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, 41 and 42, so those who received his word, talking about Peter's word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So you have the idea of devotion. These seem, in my view, you may disagree, but they seem, in my view, to be acts of worship. You're talking about following and devoting yourself to teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. These are things that have to do with the group together, pursuing spiritual activities. And that is the context in which we find this idea of breaking of bread. So you have sort of the expectation that, of course, the people who are going to be taking the Lord's Supper in the New Testament are going to be disciples. By disciples, when I use that word, I mean people who believe in Jesus and been baptized, who are followers of Jesus. That's what I mean. They are people who want to remember what's been done for them. They accept it. They believe it. So the reason for that seems to be what we talked about a moment ago, that idea of participation, that when I partake of this, I am participating in what's been done for me. I am, in a way, not only saying I agree and I celebrate this, and I remember this, but it is also sort of a pledge forward that this is going to have an impact on my life, and I'm going to continue to live for him and proclaim his death until he comes again. Okay? It is a statement of faith, is what I'm trying to get across as I read it in the New Testament. So, having established that, I think that is the idea of who qualifies for the Lord's Supper. So, some questions arise out of that that are really practice questions about what, what should we do as a church, you know, what kind of things, should, who should we offer this to, how should we do it, and that kind of thing. And I just want to say, there's going to be some leeway in that that has to do with what decisions we make as a church uh, about how we offer it and some of the practical side. Uh, that's not really something I'm going to touch on, but I will just say in terms of what should we do or what are some of my thoughts about how we do these things. So, uh, one of the first questions that comes up is, well, if that's the case, well, what about non-Christians? Which is a really, really broad question, how exactly that's defined, but people who aren't disciples. Should we even offer the Lord's Supper to non-Christians? And I will just say this. 
not offering the Lord's Supper to non-Christians is really hard to do. I mean, practically. Because, uh, and you, you men who have served on the table know this, um, there are times where you, you go through the audience and you don't know a quarter of the people here. Who's here? What's their background? Okay, what, do, do we need to check spiritual ID? You know, hey, now before I hand this to you, I, I need some proof, okay? Not only that, don't we really easily get into some judgment realms that are, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really uncomfortable beginning to say of every person, I need to judge whether or not you're a true believer or a true disciple. I tell you, I think that's a little more than we're prepared to do. So to me, the, the question here is not really what we do. That's going to have to be sort of a person-by-person thing. But it is a matter of... I, if, especially if people are continually with us, that maybe we could have an opportunity to say, you know, this is something, and maybe the men at the table could do something like this. This is something that's, that's for believers. This is something that we do as a celebration of our salvation. This is something we do as we remember what Jesus did for us. But as far as should we limit it or close it off or something like that, to me, that doesn't seem productive. It doesn't seem to be the way that that would be best. That's my opinion. Uh, I'll stay that way, but... The Q came to me, so I'm giving you my A. So uh, the, the first part of the question is, why don't children take the Lord's Supper? <clears throat> there are differences of opinion about this, uh, and, and not everybody is on the same page about this. But I will just say, i got to tell you what I think. Okay, and what I think is, and did you hear the what I think? Okay, so that means we're not talking gospel here. So everybody, you know, put this in the Jake's opinion bucket, not in the gospel bucket. In my view, children taking the Lord's Supper is, is closely akin to the question of children being baptized. Because the goal in baptizing people is that we want them to have an understanding before they are baptized. They need to be able to believe because belief is part of the condition on which baptism has any merit whatsoever. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. The people in the New Testament were believers and that's the reason they were baptized. And so we would say of children that children don't yet have the capacity or understanding to believe and to process the abstract spiritual concepts of, of Jesus and him dying for us and salvation and what sin is. Often they don't have the experience to know actually what a sin is or what that would look like or true rebellion. So, so that takes some time and we have some patience with that. And we say, you know what, they've got to grow to a point where they understand that before they're really ready for baptism. In fact, I've had conversations where people have asked me about their children and they want their children to be baptized. And I've had to say, as difficult as this is, I don't think they're ready. And that's a hard conversation. That's a hard thing as a parent. I understand that. But the reason that we have that idea is because what we don't want to do is give the sense to our young people that they're already believing baptized Christians or that they're already having the privileges that are a part of being a Christian. That's not a choice they've made yet. And that's sort of what I'm getting at when I think about this. So I, I think about this because I'm a Christian parent and I think about this a lot. I want my children, for example, I want them to learn how to sing and I want them to know how to sing, but there's a sense in which they're not singing yet because a lot of the things that we're singing about they haven't fully bought into yet. That's not really from their faith. 
And so, so that's, how do you do that transition? It's really tough. And there are parts of that where I, I want my children to learn to give, but, but sometimes me giving them money and give, having them give it is not really them giving anything. They're, they're just sort of uh, passing it along. Okay? So, so how you do that is always going to be an individual kind of thing. But as I see it, in my view, taking the supper is something that implies that I'm a Christian. Something implies that I've taken a part in this. And to me, that's something that I want to save for those who are disciples. So that's the reason that I would say, uh, for example, my kids are not going to take the Lord's Supper. And that's the reason I would say generally uh, that's not something that, that I would think would be best. That's my view. That's my opinion. Put it in the Jake opinion bucket. But you did ask, one of you. So um, in my view, we want children to accept the gospel and believe it in the same way we want them to accept the gospel and believe it before they're baptized. We want them to do that before they take the Lord's Supper. All right, I've got one more question. Uh, let's go over to 1 Corinthians 16. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 16. So this question, uh, I phrased it this way. I've kind of rephrased it. Uh, in light of 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, how should we manage monthly giving to the church? All right, I want to read the passage, and then I'll explain a little bit about where this question is coming from. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will accompany me. So what's happening in this text is that Paul is preparing this contribution, a gift, that's going to come from the Gentile churches, specifically here from the church in Corinth, and he wants to take it to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And his vision for this gift, according to Romans 15, is that it's going to create a a sort of reconciliation, a a, a sense of uh, togetherness and fellowship between two different racial groups, between the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches. And so he is concerned about that, and he wants that to happen. And that's the reason he writes so often. He writes about it in Corinthians. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He writes about it in in Romans 2. So the idea is Paul wants them to take this collection to do this work so that this can all go well and the, the goals of the gospel can be achieved. But behind this question and behind this text is the deeper question of just how did New Testament churches raise their money? What did they do to raise money? We know that New Testament churches had money. They had money because they sent it to Paul. They had money because they helped the needy ones among them. They helped their widows, those kinds of things. So how do they get that money? And you have, a, you have an example, for example, in uh, Acts chapter 4, where they took money and they, they sold their lands and their houses and they laid the money at the apostles' feet. Okay, but, but what happens when you don't have any apostles? Okay, you don't have any apostles' feet. You don't have anywhere to put that. So how, how do they raise money absent that? Well, 1 Corinthians 16 is a place that we can see this is a practice that they had in order to raise money for this specific work. And I think we can say that they took up a collection on the first day of the week in order to do this specific work. I want you to look at this verse with me. In verse 2 On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So he's telling them, collect it on the first day of the week. On Sunday, put it all together and store it up. 
He's saying this needs to be a collection that is happening regularly and then you're saving for what's going to happen when I come and I'm ready to take this on to Jerusalem. He also says in verse 2, as he may prosper, which recognizes some differences in income, that we may not prosper as well as someone else, and that's understandable, and he's not saying everybody has to give the same amount. He is saying that's something that you're going to have to deal with, and there may be fluctuations in that, and we'll talk more about that in a second. So essentially, though, what we're seeing here is that the church raised money by free will offerings from the members, and those offerings were taken on the first day of the week. Now, this offering had to do with a specific work, but in the absence of other information, I want you to hear me because this is an important point. In the absence of other information, I think we have to assume it is a fine way for us to raise money for other works that God has approved, other things that God has said he wants done. So if that's the case, then I think we have a maybe not a pattern, but at least an example that we can say that's an, a good example, an example that we can follow and know that that's fine. So the question then is in light of 1 Corinthians 16, 2, how should we manage monthly giving to the church? And the question has to do with the fact that in verse 2, it says on the first day of every week, every week on the first day, lay something aside. So what does that mean for those of us who are paid monthly and are used to working out of a monthly budget? I don't know. I didn't do a poll or anything uh, about how often everybody is paid but it seems to me that there is a bit of a difference in what Paul is speaking to in the culture in which he's speaking and our culture and the way we handle our money today. So let me start with this. i got three minutes, so I need to talk fast. I'll begin by saying this is going to be an individual thing. Okay, You may come to a different conclusion about this than I do and not violate the spirit of the passage at all. The spirit of the passage is very clear. God expects them to be willing to give, to plan their giving, and to do it according to what they can give. That's the spirit. Okay? And so the way they do that is by laying up something on the first day of the week. Because it's free will, it's not a tithe. Okay? It doesn't have to be 10%. Nothing in this text says anything about a certain percentage. Uh, that's not the system we're working under. That's not the idea here. Um, because it's free will... That means we're not going to look into your finances. We, I'm talking about as the church. Some churches do this, where they will say, we need to see your financial statements and see what you're giving. Okay? This is a free will offering in the New Testament. We practice a free will offering, and we are going to practice a free will offering. Free will means we're not forcing you, we're not coming after you. That's not what this is about. Okay? So let's get that off the table here. The other thing is, as he may prosper means things may vary. You may have variations in your income, and different ones of us are paid differently, and so there might be variations, and as he may prosper, give some leeway to that. My suspicion is that people that Paul is writing to were probably paid by the day. And when people are paid by the day, he is saying you need to be sure that once a week you're taking some of that and you're saving it up as a group because there is a work that's important enough for you to save. They need to be working toward it. So, some people are going to get paid once a month, and what they do is they put in a check once a month. And they say, there on the first day of the week, once a month, here it is. Now, the reason they do that is because they're focused on as he may prosper in this verse. And so they say, I prospered once a month, I'm given once a month. That's what I have. Some people get paid once a month, and they say, okay, I'm going to pay 
I'm going to divide that by four, sometimes by five, depending on how many first days of the week there are in the month, and I'm going to give that each first day of the week. That is what I do, but uh, that variation happens in my month because some Sundays are, sometimes there's five Sundays in a month, and I have to do the dividing differently, and that's a little bit of work, and I understand not everybody wants to do that. Uh, Some people get paid weekly. I assume some get paid biweekly. That's going to vary person to person. I'm sure we have fluctuations and things like that. I heard tale of a brother who would cash his paycheck and go at, at the bank. I know some of you don't even know what that means, but they would go to a bank, and they, he would have the cashier take out cash. I know some of you don't know what that is, but they would take out cash and put so many of his bills to the side, and he would say, before anything else was taken out, that's money for the Lord. And he would say, that's what he's going to do. You see what I'm getting at? This is going to vary about how you do your finances and how you decide to do this. But I would just say it's going to be a personal thing. We're going to take up a collection on Sunday. This congregation is going to take up a collection based on the example of 1 Corinthians 16. We should plan for it. We should budget for it. We should make our gifts from a free will spirit based on what we deem as appropriate as we prosper. But I don't believe that we're violating this example if we give, say, once a month or once every two weeks or however we find ourselves prospering, uh, if that's our financial situation. Uh, I will say one thing that we need to remember is that it's not really our business how other people give. And so we need to be careful about being concerned about how you're giving and how much you're giving and, and that kind of thing. I remember a congregation in Italy where I preached And I loved this practice um, because I've been in the congregations where somebody, the guy would come to the side of the pew and he'd have the plate and I would say, you know, it's almost like a shameful thing, you know, like I I don't have anything to give. But in Italy, they would have just a, a bag and they would pass the bag around and everybody would stick their hand in. They'd have their fist like this and then release. And so you never knew if somebody had... Anything to put or anything, nothing to put. And it wasn't our business, so it was great. I kind of liked that. I'm not suggesting we get velvet bags like they had in Italy, but if you want to, it's a good system. So this congregation is great about giving. You are a generous people, and I want you to know I benefit personally from your generosity, and I am thankful for that. I am thankful for the spirit you have, and we have one-time needs that that people have, like we had last week with the brother in Guatemala who had a need, and, and people are eager and willing to give. That is awesome. So let's keep giving. Uh, But that's my answer to that question. All right. So keep asking questions. Thank you for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes now.